So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that talks about the return of Jesus. And there are many more passages we could have looked at. Bible scholars have identified uh, 1,845 references to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So don't worry, we're not going to look at all of them, just, just most of them. Okay. No. But that number, 1,845, it's more than eight times the number of the references to the first coming. So that to me tells me that the second coming is pretty important. Now many people, whether they believe in the Bible or not, whether they're Christian or not, they, they, agree, they agree that Jesus is coming back. Some people dispute the fact that the return of Jesus is imminent. So I want to define what uh, we mean by imminent. Get this on, there we go. So the, the dictionary defines it as an adjective that means likely to occur at any moment impending. And the example given there is her death is imminent. So when we say the return of Jesus is imminent, we mean that his return may happen at any time. And also, that's likely to occur at any moment. Furthermore, for our purposes, for theological purposes, that is, what we mean is that there is nothing that has to happen before Jesus can return. His return is likely to occur at any moment because nothing else needs to happen before him to come. So to recap, what we're going to use for imminent today is the, the certainty that Jesus may return at any moment, the uncertainty of the time of that return, and the idea that no prophesied event needs to occur before that return. Now, the word imminent is like many others and we use in speaking about or describing biblical concepts in that you can only find the word in a very few translations and none of the verses are related to the return of Jesus. For example, Psalm 27.3 in the New English translation has, even when an army is deployed against me, I do not fear. Even when war is imminent, I remain confident. Now the, the CSB translates this as, though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. And I think we can agree that war breaking out is certainly war that is imminent. So 2 Timothy 4.6 in the quite unknown Lexham English Bible it says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is imminent. This is Paul writing to Timothy and he's talking about his soon-to-be death. The CSB renders this as, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is near or is close. So departure is imminent, departure is close. These mean pretty much the same thing. But in our current study, we're going to use the word imminent to convey an idea that is found throughout Scripture. The idea that Jesus is coming back, and although we don't know when, it could be at any moment. Furthermore, there's nothing preventing Jesus from returning right now. There is no event that precedes Jesus coming back. There's nothing that needs to occur before Jesus returns. And secondly, I want to define what we mean by the return of Jesus, because there's two phases to the second coming. The one is where Jesus comes and meets his resurrected saints in the air. And the second phase is when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period as the conquering king. So what I'm talking about today is the first phase, commonly referred to as the rapture, and what Jesus said in John 14, 1 to 3, where he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? 
If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. This is also what Paul wrote about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17, where he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. By the way, you know, the word rapture is not found in our English Bibles. The Greek for the caught up here is in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is harpo, which means to snatch up, to seize, to carry off by force. And it's the equivalent of the Latin word raptus, from which we get the English word rapture. And also the word raptor, as in velociraptor, for you Jurassic Park fans. So now, as I said previously, there are lots of verses that deal with the return of Jesus, but I like the passage we're looking at today because it's Jesus' own words. So let's read Mark 13, 32 to 37. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house gave authority to his servants, each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Now, this section occurs in Mark's narrative of the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus uses apocalyptic language to describe the end times, the last days before the Great Tribulation and his return. So he gives the disciples a list of signs, wars, rumors of wars, persecution of the church, the abomination of desolation, the sun darkened, the moon not reflecting any light, stars falling from the sky. But all those signs point to the tribulation period in the establishment of the millennial kingdom, not necessarily to the return of Jesus for his saints, that is the rapture. So the first part of our discussion at the return is the certainty of Jesus' return. Now, there are many scriptures that say that Jesus will return. Most of them were found in the epistles that his disciples wrote, so they obviously believed that Jesus was going to return. Even angels testified of his return. But I want to look specifically at the scriptures where Jesus actually said he would return. We already saw one of them in John 14, chapter 3, or verse 3, where he says, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am you may be also. Now this is a if-then statement. In other words, the then part of the statement is dependent on the if part of the statement. For example, I could tell you, if you give me $1,000, I will pay you back next year. I'm making a promise to pay you back, but only after you give me the money. If you refuse to give me the money, which is probably a wise decision on your choice, you have no expectation that I'll pay you back. But if, I, if you do give me the money, then you expect me to pay it back. It's the same thing here. Jesus is saying, if I go away, then I will come again. If Jesus did not go away, 
then we have no expectation of him coming back. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus did go away. So this promise is now active. Since he went away, we can expect him to come back. The sentence, I will come again, indicates one, he's making a promise. Two, he will, future tense, come sometime in the future, after he has gone away. And three, this coming again is separate from the coming the first time he came to the earth. And also we have Matthew 16, 27, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Again, here we see the future tense of his return, going to come. This statement comes right after he told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and be raised on the third day. So the going away, which is explicitly stated in John, here it's implied because how can anyone come back if they don't go away? So and lastly, let's look at Revelation 22, 12 and 13, where it says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So I added verse 13 so you make it clear that the I in verse 12 is Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now in Revelation, we know Jesus has already left the earth, and here he says, I am coming soon. He doesn't say, I might be coming soon, or if this or that happens, I will come. No, he says, I am coming. The great I am says, I am coming soon. So we have the certainty that Jesus is coming back because he said so. And there are many other scriptures where his disciples testify to this same fact, that Jesus is coming back. But what about the second part of this first point where it says, the certainty of his return at any moment? Well, we also have Jesus telling us this very thing multiple times. Matthew 24, verse 36 and 42 says, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know what day your Lord is coming. The context of Matthew 24 makes it clear that the day and hour Jesus is referring to is his return. And he says that nobody knows when that will happen. So he warns his disciples, and that's us, guys, to be alert to be ready. In fact, Jesus warns us to be alert at least nine times that I could find, and there's probably more than that. Our scripture for the day, for today, even says it twice. It says, therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or to crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. So I think we can say that scriptures teach that Jesus is coming back, and it could be at any time, which leads us into the second point, the uncertainty of that time. Now certainly, if Jesus had known when he was coming back, he would have told his disciples, but he never did. So we have to believe that he did not know, which is exactly what he said. To the contrary, he warns them about being deceived by, about his return. Matthew 24 again, in verses 4 and 5. Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. And they will deceive many. Now what Jesus warns about in this passage has happened. Wikipedia, that's a font of all wisdom and knowledge, right? 
It, it lists at least 40 people since 1700 who have claimed to be Jesus returned. One of them was Jim Jones. He certainly deceived many people. David Koresh deceived many people. There's another guy called Yahweh Ben Yahweh, which means God, son of God. I'm not really familiar with him, but... But more recently, in 2011, we had Oscar Ramiro Ortega Hernandez, who claimed to be Jesus Christ returned, and he was, trying, he was preparing to kill Barack Obama, who he said was the Antichrist. And so he said he came back to take care of that. So I'm sure these guys deceived many. But we're warned not to be deceived, but to be alert. And why is that? Well, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, a thief who breaks into your house in the middle of the night does not call you first and say, hey, I'm coming over to break in. This is what the return of Jesus will be like, like a thief breaking into a home at night with no prior warning at a time that nobody expects. Revelation 16, 15, Jesus himself says, look, I am coming like a thief. So we're to be alert, waiting for Jesus to return at any moment. But what about our last point now? that no prophesied event needs to occur for that return. Well, let's look at what the early church thought about the return of Jesus. Looking at the book of James, which Bible scholars believe to be the first chronologically book written, how we'll say that, anyway, one of the earliest New Testament epistles. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it? until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. James is solidly convinced that the return of Jesus is soon. The Lord's coming is near. The judge stands at the door. James writes this with an air of expectancy with the idea that Jesus could come back before he finishes his next sentence. Peter echoes this same expectancy, writing in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. There's that word near again. Peter obviously expected the return of Jesus soon. The writer of Hebrews cautions us in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says we can see the day approaching. In verse 37, he adds, For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. The use of the words, in a very little while, and will, will come and not delay, they say that the writer of Hebrews considered the return of Jesus imminent. Then John writes in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. John considered the time he was living in as the last hour. Paul also considered the return of Jesus to be imminent in a very personal way. We looked at these verses, but... I got them highlighted here or emphasized a little bit. He says, for we say this to you by the word of the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then we 
who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He puts this in the first person plural, right? I got that right? Where's my grammarians at? Anyway, (laughs) he's talking about, you know, right now, us, me, right now, today, not sometime in the future. So Paul obviously looked for Christ to return during his lifetime. Furthermore, in Titus 2, 11 through 13. Everybody should know Titus 2, 11, because that's our church verse. But it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear that a watchful, hopeful expectancy of Jesus returning soon is one of the godly attributes that the grace of God teaches all believers. And in none of these passages do any of the writers mention that this or that has to happen before Jesus comes back. Now, some people believe that the tribulation, the day of the Lord, must begin before Jesus can return, or the Antichrist must rise and be identified, or there are certain judgments and preliminary signs that must be fulfilled, or perhaps all those things have to happen before Jesus returns. They believe that the blessed hope Paul refers to becomes relevant only after the church has gone through the tribulation period. And at first glance, this position seems to have some biblical support. As you read through the Olivet Discourse, Jesus himself outlines the events of the last days and the various signs that would herald those days. And many of the epistles contain warnings about persecution and apostasy, the great falling away that will occur as the day of the Lord draws near. So on one hand, we have the New Testament writers showing an eager sense of expectancy and conviction that the return of Jesus is imminent. On the other hand, we're warned about trouble and affliction that will precede the return of Jesus. And I hope today to show you how we can reconcile these two viewpoints. One thing to keep in mind is that the general signs of the times that mark the last days have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled right now, right in front of our eyes. Apostasy, unbelief, self-love, sin, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, man-made disasters, recent mass murders in Buffalo and Uvalde are evidence of that. All these things are common throughout the church age. In fact, they are characteristics of the church age. Believers in every generation since the time of Christ have believed they were seeing the end times signs being fulfilled. So how are we to know whether we're living in the true last days or if we, what we see today is just more of the general apostasy and calamity that are the marks of the church age? Well, as we saw earlier in 1 John 2.18, The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, settles this. When he writes, children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming even now. Many Antichrists have come. But this we know, by this we know, is the last hour. The church was already in the last days, before the end of the apostolic era. In fact, Hebrews 1 says the last days are synonymous with the church age, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. These are the last days. 
just as the early church era was. Another thing to keep in mind is that nothing in the New Testament ever suggests that the return of Jesus cannot occur until other preliminary events take place. The only apparent exception to this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Some people take this to mean that Jesus won't return until after the seven years of tribulation, the day of the Lord. But let's look carefully at the context of this message. The church at Thessalonica was confused and upset by some false teachers who were saying that the persecution and sufferings they were experiencing were the very judgments associated with the day of the Lord, the time of apocalyptic judgment from God. Apparently, many in the Thessalonica church, or Thessalonian church, believed these false teachers and considered themselves to be under the wrath of God. Now, obviously, this was deeply troubling to them. Since Paul, in his first epistle to them, had taught them about the rapture and instructed them to comfort one another with the promise of Christ coming for them. And here they find themselves in the midst of persecution and trials and what they perceive to be God's final wrath against the world. And they feared that somehow they had missed the rapture and were about to be swept away in the final judgments of the day of the Lord. So Paul writes, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. This is Paul's attempt to address the two main fears the Thessalonians had, that they had somehow missed the rapture and that they were caught up in the wrath of God that he's going to pour out in the day of the Lord. So when Paul says, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul is talking about the day of the Lord, the end times judgment, not about the rapture of the church. He's not suggesting that the rapture will be delayed until the end of the tribulation period, nor is he suggesting that the Thessalonians should defer the hope of return of Jesus until the end of the tribulation period. After all, the main topic in Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians was to urge them to be watchful, expectant, encourage one another with the news of Christ's imminent return. If Paul is now telling them that they have to go through the day of the Lord, the tribulation, the wrath of God, what comfort and encouragement is that? It would contradict everything written in the New Testament, everything Paul said about Christ's return being imminent, comforting, and hopeful. So the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that we should be looking for the imminent coming of Christ for his church, and the second Thessalonians is no exception. Now, other people argue that the return of Jesus could not possibly have been imminent for the early church because of the obvious fact that now, almost 2,000 years later, Jesus has still not returned. Skeptics often use this to ridicule Christianity and challenge the inerrancy of Scripture. After all, the very verses we just looked at prove that the apostles all believed 
the return of Christ was very near. So skeptics argue, how can it be then that 2,000 years later, Christ has still not returned? Were the apostles in error concerning the timing of the return of Jesus? Well, here's an excerpt from a newsletter whose sole aim is to deny the inerrancy of Scripture and to give credit where credit is due. I got this off of John MacArthur's website, Grace to You. And just to be clear, he's not espousing this view. He is denouncing it. But this is what they had to say in their newsletter. Paul himself showed that he was among those who awaited the imminent return of Christ. Yet, as, hist as the history of that era clearly shows, all was for naught. No Messiah appeared. The New Testament repeatedly says the Messiah was to return in a very short time. Yet mankind has waited for nearly 2,000 years, and nothing has occurred. By no stretch of the imagination can that be considered qu coming quickly. It is indeed unfortunate that millions of people still cling to the forlorn hope that somehow a Messiah will arise to extract them from their predicament. How many years, 2,000, 10,000, 100,000, will it take for them to finally say, we can only conclude that we are the victims of a cruel hoax? How do you respond to such a charge against the truthfulness of Scripture, right? If Scripture can't be trusted in this point that Jesus is coming back, then the Bible is just another sacred text, and we can't trust it at all. Does the fact that Jesus has not returned yet, almost 2,000 years after he left, does that prove that his return is not imminent, like the apostles and others through the years have believed? Were the apostles deluded or mistaken? Are we? No, certainly not. Remember what our passage says for today. It says, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the summit, only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. The exact time of Jesus' return remains hidden from us as it was from the apostles. But the judge is at the door. The day is at hand. Jesus can return at any moment. His return is imminent for us today, and it was imminent for the apostles and the early church. There are no other events on the prophetic calendar that need to happen before he returns. Now, I suppose that Jesus could delay his return for another 2,000 years. However, given the state of our society today, and the rapid acceleration and the decline of that society, I don't see how that's possible. But you know what? When the apostles surveyed their world in the first century, they couldn't see how it was possible for Jesus to delay his return either. Nonetheless, Jesus could delay his return. That is why Jesus taught his followers, and the apostles reinforced that teaching, that we should always be prepared for his return, no matter if he comes in the next five minutes or 2,000 years from now. Besides, what is 2,000 years to the eternal God, right? Peter anticipated scoffers and unbelievers when he wrote in 2 Peter 3, 8, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years like one day. The earthly time that passes is of no consequence to us, and it's completely irrelevant to the eternal God. He's not bound by time as we are. No amount of time can ever void his faithfulness nor nullify any of his promises. Peter goes on to say in verse 9, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And here we see the real reason for the Lord's delay. Not that he's negligent or careless in fulfilling his promises, 
but because our God is long-suffering and kind, delaying the return of Jesus and the wrath that will follow it while he calls people out to salvation. Jesus cannot, Jesus will not return before God's merciful purposes are complete. Far from suggesting apathy or neglect on God's part, the long delay, the long to us that is, in the return of Jesus underscores the depth of his inexhaustible mercy and long-suffering. The fact that nearly 2,000 years have passed since Jesus departed is utterly irrelevant to the doctrine of his imminent return. Christ is coming, and that coming is still imminent. It could happen at any time. His commands to be alert and ready are as applicable to us as they were to the early church. In fact, they should be even more an urgent issue for us because we are closer to his return with each passing day. We don't know the day nor the hour, but we do know that we're almost 2,000 years closer to his return than the early church was, than when James wrote about the coming of the Lord and the judges at the door. We're close. But why is it important? that Jesus could come anymore. Does it make a difference? Should it make a difference in how we live our lives? Isn't it enough just to come to church and worship him and sing songs, keep his commandments, do his will? I mean, you know, right in the end, everything's going to be revealed, right? We'll know what happens. Well, I'm sure some Christians can live that way. But for me, the idea, the hope of Christ's imminent return has a powerful effect, a sanctifying and purifying effect on how I choose to live my life moment by moment. You know, every day we are faced with hundreds, if not thousands, of choices. And when I'm tempted to do something that I know is not right, something that's sinful, the thought that Jesus may come back and find me deliberately sinning causes me to stop and reevaluate my choice. 1 John 3, 3 says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What hope is that? the hope of Christ's return. The knowledge that Christ's coming is drawing closer should motivate us to prepare, to pursue Christ's likeness, to put off all the things that pertain to our former lives without Christ. Paul, near the end of his epistle to the Romans in chapter 13, makes this very argument. After reminding his readers of the moral commands of God, he tells them that love is the one principle that fulfills them all. Then he stresses the urgency of living in obedience to God's commands in verses 11 through 14, where he says, besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity, and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is Paul's wake-up call to the church. The return of Jesus is approaching. The time is nearer now than it was yesterday. Every second that passes brings Christ's return ever closer. So how are we to conduct ourselves? How should we redeem the time that is left to us? Well, Paul gives a three-part response that should sum up our perspective on the imminent return of Jesus. The first one is, wake up! (laughs) Okay? Paul says, it's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. 
And look at how he underscores the urgency of this command, the imminency of Jesus' return by using four phrases. He says, you know the time. We need to know what time it is. It's time to be awake and about the Father's business. Not sleeping and lying in bed. There are far too many sleepy Christians today who need to wake up. Our salvation is near. God's timetable is clicking along. If we're not careful, we could be left behind. The night is nearly over. As surely as day follows night, this present system of things will be exposed by the light of God's presence. Things may look bad now, but morning is almost here. The day is near. The day the Lord draws near when all darkness will be dispelled. The glorious day of Christ's appearance is coming. To sum this up, time is short. Opportunity is fleeting. The Lord is coming soon, and the event draws nearer with each passing second. The time to obey is now. The only time we can take for granted is now. We're not guaranteed our next breath, our next heartbeat. It's unconscionable to put off obeying the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. We may not have tomorrow. Number two, he says, throw off. The approaching day means it's time to change out of our pajamas and get ready to go to work. Paul says, let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. This imagery suggested by the word armor is like a soldier who's been out all night carousing and fallen into a drunken slumber. Now, I know none of us have done that, but, you know, okay. <laughs> look, at my, look at myself, okay? But the dawn is approaching, and now is the time to wake up. Throw off the clothes from the night of debauchery and put on the armor of light. The Greek word translated here is discard or cast off in the New King James. It's a term that speaks of being ejected or expelled forcefully. It's only used three other times in the New Testament. And in each case, it talks about excommunication from the synagogue. The idea Paul is conveying here is of renouncing and forsaking sin with force and conviction. Paul is calling for an act of repentance. He wants his readers to discard, excommunicate, break fellowship with the deeds of darkness. Paul often uses the idea of changing garments to, to describe breaking with sin and the old man. For example, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old man, which is corrupt, the old sin nature. Put on the new man, the new creation in God, created in true righteousness and holiness. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 12, we read, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So here Christians are pictured, pictured as athletes running a race. You probably already know this, but the athletes in the ancient Olympics all competed naked, stripped of all encumbrances, nothing to hold them back, ready to run, ready to compete. And just like those ancient athletes, we have a lot of baggage that we need to discard. We need to lay it at the foot of the cross, get rid of it if we're going to be prepared for the coming day. Number three, he says, put on. This is the other side of the put off coin. We're not fully prepared 
for the dawn of a new day, another day of work, until we put on the proper attire. Just as an auto mechanic would not go to work in a suit and tie, we need to make sure we have on the clothing that is appropriate to the tasks ahead of us. Paul admonishes us with two put-ons. Put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, the images of a soldier who after a night of carousing, stumbles home, falls asleep in the clothes he was wearing all night. Clothes now wrinkled and befouled with the evidence of his carousing. Days now coming, he wakes up, casts off the old dirty clothes, puts on clean clothes, polished, battle-ready armor. And the armor suggests warfare, and that's very fitting. Even though the return of Christ is imminent, we are not to forsake the battle. Nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that his people are to sit on a hillside somewhere waiting for him to appear. And some people have done this in the past. In fact, every day between now and his return, we are engaged in a battle, a battle that is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The nearness of the return of Jesus Christ does not mitigate the seriousness of the battle. To the contrary, we should engage the battle with new vigor, since we know the time is getting very short. We're not off-duty soldiers, on leave, free to carouse during the night. We're active duty, and our commander-in-chief may appear at any moment. The Christian who is not living a holy and obedient life with heavenly priorities is a Christian who does not understand the significance of the Lord's imminent return. If we genuinely expect Jesus to return at any moment, then we should be living like that. But after putting on the armor of light, we're also told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the rest of verse 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This putting on the Lord Jesus Christ may sound strange at first, but realize what Paul is saying here. The goal of progressive sanctification is to remake us in the image of Jesus Christ. When we are glorified, when Jesus returns, we will instantly be made conform to the image of Christ. We'll be as much like him as it's possible for humans to be. But while we're here on this earth, the goal is to make us as much like Christ as is possible in these fleshly bodies of sin. As we grow in grace, as we progress in sanctification, we should grow in Christ-likeness and become a reflection of his character and his holiness. This is what Paul means when he says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to pursue sanctification, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, as God brings us more and more into conformation with his Son, following after Christ in our conduct and our character, letting the mind of Christ be our mind, and his example our guide to living this life. Remember, justification is a once-for-all event, a completed when we are regenerated by the blood of Jesus Christ, which occurs when we accept his sacrifice as the atonement for our sins and make Jesus our Lord and Savior. But sanctification is an ongoing process that starts with justification and doesn't end until we're with Jesus, either by the rapture or by our death. The blessed hope of the imminent return of Jesus gives us the proper perspective and understanding of sanctification. So to recap here, 
here are some key verses that tell us what we should be doing and how we should be conducting ourselves in view of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We've looked at most of these already, but they have some good commands in there, and I don't want to miss them, so we're going to go back to them and look at them again. James 5.8, where he says, You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. We're to be patient. Patient with one another when people irritate us. Patient with God when he doesn't act as fast as we think he should. Patient with ourselves when we fail remembering that our sanctification and that of all other Christians is a process and will take the rest of our lives. We're also to be steadfast, strengthening our hearts with the blessed hope of Jesus' return. The next verse, verse 9, he says, Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Now, this is tough. It's tough for me anyway. This goes along with having patience, but goes a little further. Note here, James says, grumbling and complaining about one another could lead to judgment. And the judge is at the very door. Grumbling and complaining is one small step removed from gossip and can be the death knell for any church. Does this mean we have to like everything that happens at church or everything our church does or everything our church leaders do? Of course not. But there are ways of making your displeasure known without grumbling. For one, go to the person who can fix the problem. Don't talk about it to others or grumble to yourself. Unless there's sin involved, it's probably just a matter of preference. I like chocolate ice cream. My wife likes vanilla. I like nuts and chocolate on my ice cream. Yes, I put chocolate on chocolate ice cream, okay? But my wife likes fruit. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. As the end approaches, we should be people of prayer. Not that we are to pray only serious, sober prayers. We're to pray for all things, no matter how trivial they may seem. But in all our prayers, we should be serious and sober-minded about our prayers. Praying in expectation that God will hear and act on the prayers that we pray in his will. Alert and watchful for the return of Jesus, but also mindful of what is happening in the world. As we see the end approaching, our prayers should be relevant to what is happening in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our region, in our country, and in the world. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Many people say, I just didn't get anything out of church today. Well, did you ever consider that maybe you were at church today not for what you could get, but for what you could give? Let me ask you a question. Why do you come to church? To worship Almighty God? To hear His Word? Yes and yes. But here the writer of Hebrews gives us another reason to assemble ourselves together. To encourage, to exhort one another in order to provoke, to stir up love and good works. I'm here today giving a general exhortation to the assembly, but you may have a special exhortation for someone. A word of encouragement. A word of correction. Only you and God know what you have 
that someone may need to hear. And if you're not here, then both you and the person who needs to hear it are missing out on what God has. And note what else is said here. We should be encouraging one another as a matter of course, but all the more as you see the day approaching. As the return of Jesus gets closer and closer, we need to be assembling together to encourage, exhort, and correct one another more and more. 2 Peter 3, 10-12 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of the Lord and hasten its coming. Since the heavens and earth will be dissolved, why are we wasting our time on earthly concerns? Our conduct is to be holy and we are to be people of godliness, Christ-likeness. We are to be Christ's hands and feet. We should be about the Father's business, not our own business, as we wait for the day of his return. And note that our conduct will hasten its coming. How, you may ask? I believe it has to do with what Paul wrote in Romans 11.25, where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the last Gentile to be saved gets saved, then God can turn back to Israel and deal with them. And that all happens during the tribulation period, which means we will be out of here and we'll be with Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. When Jesus returns, we'll be transformed to be like him. If that is your hope, then it should motivate you to want to be more like Jesus right now. We should want to be serving him, be ready to meet him, and be pleasing him right now. Not that we have any hope in what we do in ourselves. Our hope is in him, in Jesus. So church, your orders are clear. First thing is wake up. Be alert, be watchful, be ready. Throw off, get rid of the sins that detour us, detour our lives, they stop us from serving God and from doing his will. Third thing is put on, put on the armor of God, put on Jesus Christ by cooperating with the Holy Spirit as it convicts us of sin and sanctifies us for the work of God. And remember, as we see the world moving quickly towards what appears to be the final days, don't be discouraged. It says here in Luke, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now maybe you're here today and you're wondering what all this means because you're not a Christian. You may be thinking, oh, that's very nice for you, but not for me. I don't need to worry about any of that. Well, I got to tell you something. Everyone will meet Jesus someday. Everyone. Those who are his, those who have accepted him as their Lord and Savior will meet him either in the air during the rapture or meet him when they die. And they'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Those who deny Jesus and refuse to accept him as their Lord and Savior will still meet him, but under very different circumstances. If you don't know Jesus, when you meet him, you'll be condemned to a place of eternal torment where there's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. It doesn't have to be that way. If you feel the Holy Spirit touching you today, come forward for prayer as the worship team comes up and plays this last song. Or see one of us after the service. We'll be glad to explain the salvation that Jesus offers in more detail. If you need prayer for anything else, please feel free to come up as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that, that you sent your son in the first place, that he did leave, and that he is coming back. Lord, help us to live like he might come back in the next minute or two. But Lord, help us to work for your kingdom like he's not coming back for another 2,000 years. Lord, don't let us get complacent and lazy and just waiting on a hilltop for you to show up, Lord. Help us to be active and be about your business, to wake up, to throw off all this stuff that hinders us, Lord, and to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would just help us today to live more and more like you, be conformed to your image more and more every day. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.